Hello and welcome to the Gig Stories podcast with me, Alex, and him, Chris. Now, you can't see him. He's not sucking a wasp. He's actually just sucking a mint. Are you still on a mint just before no, the podcast? I took, I took it out. I realised that that was bad form. Just go, all right, shall we record now? Pop the triple X in. Uh, no, that's not a good look. Sound. We're, we're pushing episode 20 and all of a sudden... He's, he's whacking a polo in his mouth. He's cool. <laughs> take it. My mouth is cool because I have a mint in it. <laughs> How are you doing? The sun is out. The sun is shining. And we're in attics and cupboards doing, yeah. doing a podcast intro because that's how much we love our listeners. There's yeah. no summer breaks here. Although, let me just tell you, listener, I was pushing for a summer break because it's been crazy, crazy. But Christoph here, Christopher has taken the reins as always and he's making sure that we get podcasts and that you get podcasts right throughout the summer so after three everyone cheer three there we go yeah the nation just cheered for you there christopher Payne. yeah awesome how'd you feel chris well for denying you a holiday from from a podcast (laughs) Uh, i feel fine i feel professional (laughs) Yeah, do, 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 you, do you feel you could have done better in that race? In what race? In that race you've just run, the um, the Olympic uh, podcasting producing race. No, I'm, I was happy. I got a PB. You got a PB? Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, he edited this week's episode in under 12 hours. A podcast best. <laughs> PB. So are you loving the Olympics? Oh. I mean, this is a sporting podcast. It's the best. It's the best. I love it. I love the... I mean, I know a lot of people have mentioned, but you do get to be an expert really quickly. Um, oh yeah, in sports that you've never even heard of. Um, mm. I was loving the three three on three basketball. That was great. Yeah, that was good, um, that, wasn't it? Serbians. That and uh, did you see the final? The final was fantastic. And was one amazing. guy went went over on his on his ankle, and he was he was like, "Tape me up, tape me up. I can I can go again." And they won it. Um, but he was like, "Come on, I can do this." Uh, so I loved that. Um, what else have been watching? My favourite is where they get the horses to pretend like they're creeping around a haunted mansion. Yeah, yeah. Tippy toe. I mean, that's very impressive. Yeah, were they doing what was one of them to like a Phil Collins tune? Was it like <laughs> Against All Odds or something? <laughs> and it was just just chucking out some shapes. This this horse was just. It was great. Oh, someone made a great comment when the event the event in won gold and i know i'm being classist here but someone just put oh this is so good i'm so excited for all the kids around britain on the council of states who can just get out there now and get on a horse and really make it dance around it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, yeah i was loving that i was loving that but bringing it back to music oh wow go on when this goes out i will be in cornwall preparing for sam fender and falls thank you ladies and gentlemen thank yeah. you on a thank beach you very much in the rain <laughs> it's britain i've got my cagoule but you have reminded me that it's 25 years since uh, a big old gig that you went to in loch lomond, loch lomond. yeah ballack castle in loch lomond um on the banks and yeah so in 1996 August, August the third and the fourth was Oasis at Ballach Castle, and so I went on the Sunday, and yeah, it was just it felt like something quite remarkable. I mean, obviously, 
I was living in Glasgow at the time, so I wasn't going to get down to Nebworth. Um, main road was probably going to be a stretch. Um, so they kind of bookended. They were either side. Um, but Balak was amazing. I was just looking at the um, the support. Um, I didn't... So Black Grape cast, Ocean Colour Scene, Bootleg Beatles, and they're the only ones that I can actually really remember apart from Oasis because the Bootleg Beatles were phenomenal. They opened... If I could, well, I I was at Nebworth, and in Nebworth, the bootleg Beatles opened. Well, I um the last name, the fifth name was Dread Zone, so I think they might have wow. opened, um, and then bootleg Beatles were on kind of uh, two ish something like that. But yeah, it was it was great because it was all costume changes as they went through the through the decade of of the Beatles yeah. and well yeah. not what well, wasn't even the decade of the Beatles that's the mad thing no that's the crazy thing isn't it yeah it was like 63 to 69 basically every every um, few weeks yeah yeah um but yeah bootleg Beatles were fantastic but um yeah Oasis and I was looking at the um the set list and the oh, set yeah, the Oasis set list. The Oasis set list. There were twenty tunes that they played. I'm just going to rattle through it. Columbia, obviously, they started with mm. "Acquiesce," "Supersonic," "Hello," some might say "Roll with It," "Slide Away," "Morning Glory." Right. So that was the first eight tunes. Then "Round Our Way," um, which went into "Up in the Sky," "Cigarettes and Alcohol," "Whatever," which ended with "Octopus's Garden." Cast No Shadow, Wonderwall, Master Plan, which was the first time they played Master Master Plan yeah. live. Don't Look Back in Anger, My Big Mouth, It's Getting Better, Man, Live Forever, Champagne Supernova, I Am the Walrus. Oof. It's a and set, that, that is a set list and a half. Sorry to rattle them all off, but my God. No, that I, for, I forgot because I, I, I'm willing to bet the Nebworth was exactly the same. Set I wouldn't list. be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, because um, I remember Master Plan and Round Our Way, which were yeah. sort of a B-side kind of things, weren't they? Oh, yeah, and, and obviously Acquiesce. But. Yeah, but Round Our Way was such a massive thing. It was. It just felt because they had a big band. I think they had. Um, they had the mouth organ. You know the. Yeah, the Muthi, the mouth organist, and the Muthi, the, the Muthi. I'm they sorry, wee... everyone. Uh, Chris was just having to translate himself. <laughs> they had Wee Billy with a Muthi in the back. Wee Billy, I had the Muthi, and a Grey with a scratchy bar, and then the twangy one, <laughs> the Banksy Lachlomond. Um, but yeah, they had they had more than just the four or five of them. There was uh, five of them. There was there there, was, there were others as well. It did was, you have any guests on? Did I have any guests? Did you? Did Oasis have any guests on stage? Oh right, right. Uh, not that I remember. I don't no. think so. Because we we had John Squire walk on. John Squire played, did he? John Squire came on and played Champagne Supernova. Ah, uh, right, right. I don't think so. Um, I do remember that we kind of after a few numbers we kind of moved towards the back because it started to resemble a bit of a urine soaked war zone. Um, down the front because people weren't wanting to go to the toilet well they were wanting to go to the toilet but they would do they were going to the toilet in their pint pot and then chucking it um and that was the first time i'd experienced that and hopefully the last um oh, really? so we yeah so and I, I saw it mentioned on twitter earlier today that it was the um i don't know if you know the derogatory term a ned you know a ned is a scally a, a, just a young okay. young ruffian 
Um, a young ruffian. A young ruffian. Yeah, but it was it was mentioned that that was the start of proper way Oasis fans, where it got really, lads, lads. really blokey lads, lads, and um, and I yeah, I can understand that. I think I think it did feel a little bit like that. The music was fantastic. I just didn't want to be under a shower of piss. Well, in '95, I went to download which was Monsters of Rock back then, and it was headlined by Metallica, and I spent the whole day having it thrown over me. (laughs) It's just... just People stop. Just stop. It's minging. It's minging. Yeah. I remember feeling and and knowing, because we were at Nebworth, and it was, what, 125,000 or something, knowing that, yeah, this is massive. Something... This was an an event. You know, not Mm. everyone plays Nebworth. Um, What was it? rainbow queen or something like you know in the past yeah the um, who the who yeah i think it's only it's only a it's only a handful robbie williams oh yeah um, it's only a handful of people that can get that amount of people into a, a, a venue and it was it was great and for me it was possibly the last great oasis gig i saw so yeah. it went down for, for me just me personally i know there were others but it went sort of sort of went a bit down that was yeah. the last one i that was the last one i saw hmm. that was my sixth and final um right okay so i saw them at badlands a couple of times i yeah. traveled down to whitley bay whitley bay whitley bay on the ice rink and it was actually it was cold you yeah, feet, yeah, yeah. feet were like blocks of ice by the end of it um went up to Irvine beach earlier that in 96 and then Loch Lomond so that was those was six and then and then the only other time was sitting in my yard hearing Oasis from Heaton Park yeah basically I didn't go with that one because they on the um what album was Lila hey Lila it was that standing on the shadows shoulders no I think it was later wasn't it was it I don't know (laughs) I I kind of fell out of love with them after yeah me too me too second album well third and I've, and I've mentioned that talk because it was the gig at the Millennium Stadium where, stupidly, they chose to have the Foo Fighters support them. And mm. I've never seen such a... I mean, they literally tore the place apart. And then yeah. Oasis came on and they weren't even bothered. They weren't asked. It was so boring. But yeah. Nebworth and Loch Lomond 25 years ago. So from, from Oasis and pint pops of pee being thrown over the crowd. I can't, wait for, I can't wait for this. Go on. How are you squeezing this in? Who's our guest? <laughs> it couldn't be further removed from Oasis at Loch Lomond. Today's guest is the writer of one of my favourite songs of all time. Remember Bright You're Eyes. a Womble? No. So close though. Yeah, Remember You're a Womble is a belter. Yeah. Do you know what? I love I love the diversity of guests that we've been having on this podcast. That's a bit of a boast, isn't it? But it's... um. It's genuine. It's just a fact, Alex. It it's a just fact. a fact. Deal with it. it. Is. It's a it's a big fact. <laughs> Staring you in the face. He's music royalty. He is ab- genuine music royalty and has been behind some of the greatest songs of all time. Bright Eyes, I remember, was my fir- was the first song. Oh no, I mentioned it to him in the podcast. So I'm not going to say too no much. No spoilers, actually. but I, I love it as very well. Very emotional. Maybe yeah. very emotional, that song. And oh, it was absolutely. One of my first real emotional connections to a song as a, as a human being when I was younger. I and think it could be a Desert Island disc of mine, to be honest. Do you reckon? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I loved you. I love the story behind it. Yeah, he mentions it, and I, I love the story behind that, and who he manages to get in his front room to sing it, and it's just brilliant. And I, I, I really enjoyed this because it was nice to hear from uh, a singer-songwriter who writes for others as well as themselves and has had a career that has taken him um, physically everywhere and both professionally all over the place too, you know, some amazing, yeah. amazing things. And I genuinely and, and, don't want to spoil it. No, absolutely. You. And the Wombles, we talk about the Wombles um, yeah. towards the end and the Wombles were outstanding. They were so good. Yeah. And it, is, it's, it was, yeah. people now will talk about the Wombles as a musical entity in the same way mm. that they'll talk about the Teletubbies or, or um, you know, Bob the Builder's novelty thing. But it wasn't. It was it was a touring band who created, and they created some some amazing, I mean, it was glam rock, really, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it was funny. It, it, quite, it was quite a bizarre, bizarre thing, but amazing. And. I'm fairly unique. I'm not sure there's ever been anything like it. No, since. no, really mm-hmm. interesting. And, you know, I, I would, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but, but I am, uh, I would recommend going back and listening to some, some Wombles because <laughs> it's so really true, knockout actually. stuff. It's so really true. Knockout. It's so true. And he's an absolute gentleman and we were really lucky to, uh, to have his time. And I, I honestly think you're going to in, enjoy this one. And this is, this is what I really like about this podcast is, is we've been so lucky to get guests that you probably wouldn't listen to otherwise and or search out. But we are absolutely privileged to have, to have had this chat. So sit back, relax, or however you listen to this podcast, just really enjoy the gem, the butte that is Mike Bat. Welcome to the podcast that brings you me, hello, him, hello, and a fabulous guest to talk about our love of music, and in particular, live music. Now, I'm going to be honest, today's guest is a genuine bona fide legend, an often overused word, but it's never, never been more accurately used than referring to a musician who has and continues to span all genres of music and has written for, performed with, conducted and discovered the very best from Steely Span, Elkie Brooks, Art Garfunkel, the London Symphony Orchestra, Katie Melua, Slash, Andrew Lloyd Webber and, yep, the Wombles. Just right in the song, Bright Eyes gets this guest legendary status in my not-so-bright peoples. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Mr. Mike Bat. Mike, how are you? <laughs> well, there we are. I think that's the first time I've been called fabulous today. Hey. <laughs> Excellent. But, uh, very well, thank you to answer your question. Honestly, it is an absolute privilege. And I am going to be honest with you, Mike. Chris messaged me and said, Mike Bat is willing to come on to the podcast. And the first thing I did was uh, was Google Mike Bat because I thought he's come up with some strange indie guitarist from the 90s that I've never heard of because there's no way 
that it's Mike Bat. And so I'm looking and I messaged and said, Mike Bat, which Mike Bat? So I honestly blown away. Thank you so, so much. Well, people usually Google me because they don't know who I am. They've never heard of me and they want to know who I am. So that's a good <laughs> way. I'm glad you turned. That was the reason. Yeah, I'm glad you turned around that sentence, Alex, didn't you? <laughs> well, no, because uh, no, it's impossible for someone of my age to not know Mike Bat, which is why I thought it was clearly not the Mike Bat, is it? How has Chris managed to do that? <laughs> but here we are. It is, as a, as a young child, Mike Bat's the Womble. So it's fantastic to see you. And you're looking, you're looking good. And it sounds like you've been busy. I have. I've had a very busy lockdown, actually. Um, I started just flapping about trying to get a project started with, with somebody I met in France, a new friend who um, I didn't meet him in France. He came to here um, and through some mutual friends we met. We had a couple of meet, meetups uh, and it, with a piano, you know, in a, in a little studio uh, to check each other out kind of thing. <laughs> and um, he asked me to produce an album with him, which I'm going to do. I can't say who it is, actually, I'm afraid. I'm sure we'll find out in due course. Yeah. And anyway, so spent, I spent all last year writing and uh, this year just trying to dodge, trying to set COVID up, uh, not set COVID up, but set, you know, <laughs> a session up with COVID restrictions and all of that. But um, also the, the good thing that's come out of it is all last year, I hadn't had the luxury of an, of, uh, an engineer. And usually I have an engineer when I'm producing. Right, okay. So uh, I've, I've, although I, I mix on Pro Tools myself, it's always with an engineer hovering in the background if I want to change, you know, some bus or the, or the or, I don't know, some weird plug-in. But uh, now I've, I've got so handy with logic because I just had to, had, had to, that um, I'm engineering all and everything myself. So um, the samples you can get these days are so good. Yeah. That, um, you know, it sounds pretty full already and pretty, pretty much it could, you could put it out. But of course, now that um, it's easier to work with with musicians, uh, then then obviously we're going to put some sessions together. We have I've got yeah. some some uh, work I'm doing next week with a, with strings, uh, a woodwind section, and a, a brass section as well. And are you having to change the way you work at the moment? Anyway, short term, when you're working with. Um... Uh, these musicians I'm assuming one in one out is it or you know similar oh well you have to have the same um, musicians in the orchestra all day long uh, you know and if people are going to leave because the orchestra usually gets smaller during the day I usually put the big pieces at the front of yeah. the day if it's a big powerful symphonic thing uh, if it's or, or even if it's just some string overdubs for a, 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 a record or if it's a rhythm section, a rhythm section would be usually be the same four or five people all day long. Mm-hmm. But if it's, um, you know, just for economics sake, if you start off with a 60 piece orchestra in the morning and you only need 40 in the afternoon, obviously 20 leave. And then you might just have one with only a string quartet on in the evening. And it's the, so that's how I often organize it, just in descending order of bulk. Has, are you still able to do that with current conditions? It's slightly different with COVID because it's back. It's like when we used to work in smaller studios when before, when I was young, you know, when I was about 18, 19, 20, 21, 
doing this. Yes, we could work in big studios, but also uh, a lot of work was done in small studios like Dick James studio where Elton did his first album. That was a small studio. You could only get about eight string players in there. So you did everything, strings, (laughs) and you did four woodwinds and you might do some saxes, Um, you know, so everything was all done separately. It depends. You just use whatever your um, facilities are. And and as you were saying about something else before this, before we came on air, every good thing seems to have a bad thing and every bad thing seems to have a good thing. There's a balance, isn't there? A benefit from... uh, from um, having to work around things, you find that you actually get advantages. The, the, the past year then you don't feel has been too um, restrictive or you've not felt too overwhelmed. You feel like you've still been able to be creative and, uh, and, and, and get these pieces going. Well, I've been lucky that I've had this project to do. Yeah. And not that I'm short of projects usually, but um, I'm working on a project, which is one of my own projects, but I don't know whether it's going to come out to next year or the year after. Yeah. Um, but this is a project that I know will come out. It's, it's um, you know, to be, to be just blunt about it, the, the finance is already in place. It's not as if we've got to go schlepping around record companies to, to sell it, which is, of course, the part of my job that I like the least. Yeah. Yes. Which is why I loved having my own label uh, recently. But... Um, so this one is, is, is the one that was, has kept me occupied. And uh, the thing that I, like everybody else, suffered from is that cabin fever that you get when you're in the house all the time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't sort of get up and think, oh, damn, I've got to be in the house all day. But you just are. And it just <laughs> makes you think, oh, okay. Um, you know, you lose track of what day it is. The usual things people say about the COVID time. Um, obviously, the the anxiety that goes with will it last? How long will it last? Uh, people can't gig. I, I did I did do some um, transmissions, or what do you call them, uh, from here, from where I'm sitting now, talking to you, yes. um, as concerts, which are on my um, what do you call it uh, on Facebook site, on my Facebook page, and. Um, I did about four or five of those on, on every Wednesday at nine o'clock, just just to keep me keep my sort of performing muscles, um, you know, exercised. And and people kind of said that they liked them. I don't know how many people watched them, but after a while, it became so much of an event the Wednesday evening that it was taking over my life. And I decided <laughs> that you know that was just too much really to put in when I was trying to write songs and arrange stuff for, for a project. So I might do them, but I'll probably bring them back maybe once a month or, or something like that. Well, I do really enjoy being able to get on, on a, a virtual version of getting out there and playing for people, except I'm in here playing for people. Yeah. I mean, we had a similar thing with the podcast. We started doing it weekly. And that was great. We got we got loads of interviews in the bank, and we could do it weekly. But then, yeah, the 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 work has started to to creep into the diaries, and so we're we're now every fortnight we we put an episode out, and I think that's that's about right. I think that's yeah. that's good. That's that'll do. That'll do. Yeah. Um, so so Mike, I'd like to take you way back um, to yeah to find out. What was your what was your childhood like in terms of music? Was it a musical household that you grew up in? 
Well, I would say the, 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 the natural first answer, and the one that I often give to that question, is no, it wasn't a musical household on the surface of it, because my mum wasn't musical particularly, my dad, he actually used to thump out three tunes on the piano, always on the black keys. But no, it wasn't um, chopsticks, it was, sounded like a real pub piano player. And I thought, that's weird, because he, he was a civil engineer, ex-army guy, uh, during the war. And, and he had no other um, playing experience or ability but he could vamp these three tunes out I thought that's that's incredible that's just the only thing he could do in terms of music but you had a piano you had a piano in the house though well yeah he bought a piano because he loved he, being very good with his hands and fantastic at woodwork and mechanics he was a member of the Me- institute of mechanical engineers uh, mm. and of civil engineers he was a very clever guy but very straight and very much um I get my sort of wacky side from my mum, but my dad was, <laughs> yeah, no, he's a very much a sort of um, army kind of guy. And uh, he used to like buying stuff from, let's say a junk shop. So in this case, he bought a piano, more as a piece of furniture than anything. And he would do the woodwork up and probably look to be selling it on. And um, I just got to start tinkling on it and picking out tunes. I must have been at least 10, 10 years old um, when I started doing that, nine or 10. So it was quite late in life to, to you know, I wasn't a three-year-old, three um, you know, violinist or anything like that. Mm. So, but what, what, what was in my house, in my family's house, there were four of us kids, uh, is that my dad used to like buying old 78s. Uh, and so we had George Formby, lot of George Formby records, but he had one of those old um, gramophones with a horn, you know. All right. And you wound it up as well as you could. And halfway through the record, it started slowing down again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so you didn't wind it up again and it would go too fast. Um, so so that, that was my, so George Formby at various speeds was, you know, <laughs> 70 RPM, sometimes 80 RPM, but you hopefully. <laughs> okay. um, and also things like weird things like uh, the Andrews sisters, not weird, that's great. Um, being, I don't know, just, just whatever was in the marketplace that day when he bought those few records, you know. Um, and uh, so I, I got into George Formby and I got into um, oh, stuff like that and just. Um, uh, so did you start, can you remember a time where? you were dictating where you were starting to put music on and you were making these choices. Yeah. Again, later in life than you'd well, maybe 12 ish, 11, 12. I, we lived in Bradford at that time because we lived in all the different, we lived in lots of different places for about three years each. Um, Which was because my dad used to apply for jobs that he would see. We lived in Southampton. He'd see a, a job in Eastbourne. And we'd move and they see a job in Bradford and we moved to Bradford and we moved to Coventry for three or four years. So I've, I've been all over the country, and, uh, <laughs> which I actually kind of liked because it's sort of, you learn to make friends and then move on and maybe keep the friends and some of them. And anyway, so we were in Bradford. I was about 11, maybe 10. And through the letterbox comes a leaflet from, because there was no, 
junk mail on the internet, of course, the junk mail came through the letterbox, like bulb catalogs and things like that. Um, crocus catalogs and things like that. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and what came through was the offer from classic, for Concert Hall Record Club. Um, you can get four EPs for nothing, which was a good deal. I thought, great, brilliant. <laughs> in a very, very small print, it said once a year you had to spend 26 shillings and 11 pence, three farthings, or whatever it was. It wasn't quite that. Oh, on, on a full LP, a proper LP, new two quid. Yeah. Now, 26 bob, actually, was <laughs> was about a one pound and a quarter, one, one pound 25. So the first one I got, which I had to sort of, it was I couldn't really afford to, but I got... Um, the first choice I had, I chose, was Schubert's Ninth Symphony. And it came through the, well, it didn't come through this box because it was 12 inches wide. But <laughs> uh, I remember putting it on the gramophone because by then we'd got um, a radiogram, which yeah, yes. well, took 12 inches. And um, I used to, I love this piece of music so much, I used to stack the dining room furniture up into a pile and put notices all over it saying first violins, oboe, uh, over to the right, cellos. Oh, yeah. And I would conduct my red my orchestra of furniture on the Saturday mornings when my parents went out. So that Wonderful. Um, and so that's my version of jumping around with, with a hairbrush being Mick Jagger on the <laughs> on the sofa and where did where did the decision for for schubert come would, would had you been listening to that on the radio at some point no, or? i i sort of picked it out of the air i i could hardly pronounce schubert never mind had heard of him um it was my introduction to classics so i i, I had strauss which i pronounced strauss because i don't could see it written down i had sibelius uh, which I pronounced Sibelius because I didn't know any, anything else. Yeah, oh, God, of course you did. Yeah, I, I had all of them wrong, you know, but I still listened to them. Uh, <laughs> uh, to this day, I, I live in fear of coming out with, not with fear, of course, but I would laugh if it happened. But if I came out with a pronunciation <laughs> of that, uh, I, I used to call Shostakovich Shostakovich. Shostakovich, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and anyway, so I, I was into classics, but then along comes the Beatles. Along came the Beatles uh, ah. in 1962, and I was 12, and I had the very great mis the great <laughs> the very great fortune of growing up through my teens as the Beatles were first being exposed to the world. So, what did they mean to you? Did you become quite a quite a big fan were you sort of on the obsessive end or, or was it you know sort of not not quite that no i was a massive massive fan uh, i was completely taken with it and the stones as well i uh, just lapped it up everything that was coming out the, the loving spoonful uh, oh, yes. beach boys um it was all happening when i was in my my first of all in my what did you call it the early teens and then my proper teens and you know, you'd be preparing, comparing notes with your pals at school and you'd just say, oh, the Beatles, what do you think of their new single? It's not as good as the last one, is it? In fact, I think they've lost it, really. <laughs> <laughs> the next, and it would be something like, we can work it out. And um, the next day, you'd think, yeah, it's not so bad, that, actually. And then the third day, fourth day, you'd think, you know, what? I think this is probably their best single ever. Yeah. <laughs> 
we can work it out is actually one of my favorite Beatles tracks. I think it yeah, might be on top yeah, five. Absolutely. It's absolutely brilliant. So we're in there then. So you've we've hit your teens. Where during your teens then did you uh, start going to live music? Well, my parents literally never went out to concerts. Right. I think some of it was because they were strapped for cash. Because even yeah. though my dad, well, I mean, you can't talk about old money, but he was on, <laughs> he started on £250 a year um, as a civil engineer when he came out of the army, as a, an acting major at the age of 24, uh, after the war. And he got a job. You know, anyway, I, I digress. So as he, as we all came, uh, you know, got born, uh, we lived in, you know, what we thought were fine houses and we, we didn't have a bad standard of living. But my mum and dad always were, you know, if they ever argued, they argued about money. It was all about, you know, you overspent the housekeeping or, you know, who's going to get the new shoes this month? Because three people need them, but only one person can have them. So yeah, yeah. concert tickets wouldn't have been on the agenda at all. Just not at all. Yeah. And we, we had a telly, black and white telly, when, when I, I'm sounding like that... Uh, Monty Python sketch. <laughs> Gravel. Oh, you, you were lucky. <laughs> in the shoebox, mate. We didn't have a television at all. But I think, but I think it's because you were that generation. You know, you ha- you just happened to be that generation where your parents, you know, post-war, they lived through the war. Things were tight, and really, come the sixties and seventies, when you were a teenager you were then starting to find your own freedom and, you know, rock and roll hit the shores. and Yeah. Um, I, I remember there was a student at the local, when we moved to our final sort of family resting place, should we say, which was where my mum and dad met originally. So they came back to Roost, you would say, at, uh, mm. at Winchester, where we went to school at Peter Simmons School. And there was a, there was a, when I was about 13 or 14, there was a, um, a student teacher down at, at the training college who knew my mum, because my mum was a teacher. And um, he was interested in classical music, and he would, I learned quite a lot from him. He popped around and said, have you heard this Wagner thing? And uh, it was Wagner's Siegfried Idol, which became one of my favourite pieces ever, which I still would recommend to anyone who wants to, you know, listen to something just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Um, and uh, although I'm not a big Wagner fan, I don't go to a lot of Wagner operas, but you know, I love his instrumental pieces yeah. anyway. So, so uh, he, he took me with my parents' permission, obviously, um, because it was a big adventure on the train from Wichita to London. And we went to the Festival Hall and we saw wow. Tchaikovsky's piano concerto, uh, and uh, Schubert's uh, Unfinished Symphony, Symphony Number no. Eight, which was fabulous. I can I can just remember it opening. I just remember, you know, the 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 lights going down. I'm in this fabulous concert hall, the like of which I just had never been in. And this that's not quite how it goes, but the the violins just starting with this uh, figure, and then I probably got the key wrong. Huh? Yeah, anyway, yeah, that is the key, the key is wrong. Anyway, so, um, but that piece just, you know, the idea of being at this concert was great. The, the thing that was, was funny about the concert was even though the, the old geezer playing the piano was great, he had a creaky piano stool. 
<laughs> we were like in the third row of the stalls. And this it wasn't just like the odd creak. It was like, <laughs> all the way through. Tchaikovsky's uh, um, in, the, in, the, in the quiet movement. In, well, after the, no, after the second movement, um, he'd been, I think somebody realised it and they ran on with a new piano stall and replaced it. And he carried on, which made the evening very memorable. Yes. If off stage, it would have even been more memorable. But yeah. <laughs> so when, can did. you remember the first time that you saw an orchestra or you heard an orchestra live? Because there's something yeah. very special about, um, yeah, of course, hearing the orchestra play, but it's that moment where um, they get their note from the, the oboe and, yeah. and they start tuning up and there's a really lovely kind of frisson in the in the audience um can you remember the first time that you experienced that yeah um i was really lucky to be in bradford at the age of 11 or so when the school uh, no not the school it was um just at lunch times they ran concerts and there were free concerts by the halle orchestra and sir john barbaroli himself the great oh, really? founder of the orchestra he was yeah. alive then. obviously he would have to be and uh, he was conducting the concerts and they did, you know, also they had schools visits. And so I went to one of those with the school. And so we did, we went to uh, St. George's Hall in Bradford. And uh, I, that, that's where, you know, I saw the glory of a brass section blaring out. And I heard the fabulousness of the timpani banging away. Yeah. And it was that that made me think, my God, this is... This is just wonderful. I didn't even think, I, I didn't have aspirations because it, aspirations would have been too far to have projected myself at that age. Yes. Yeah. But uh, it was certainly what captivated me, I'm sure. So during your teens, did your live gig experience continue? Did you did you go to many live gigs or were you just sort of too busy playing or writing? Well, it started that I was playing because I, I was, I'd learned enough to, I, I, I first learned to play the piano by having first learned to play, if you, don't, if you understand what I'm saying, the yeah. accordion. Uh, when I was in Bradford, a, a kid, a Polish kid called Kazakh Nowakowski was a pal of mine. He, he taught me how to play the accordion. Amazing. And if you, if you know the left-hand side of the accordion, it's buttons and yeah. it's the keys are all there's you, the harmonic um, uh, round, you know, fifths, uh, the sort of circle of fifths. So you know that C is next to G, which is next to D, which is next to A, which is, and that teaches you. And if, I thought to myself, well, if I can press a button and play C, on my left, which will accompany my right hand. Surely I can learn how to play a C chord with three fingers of my left hand that will accompany my right hand. And so that's how I taught myself to play the piano. And, and so um, just sort of worked it out really because I wanted to so much. Yeah, so I got to quite a good standard playing the piano even to the extent I used to, um, I had a bedroom on the ground floor because we didn't have enough bedrooms on upstairs. So I had the main front room as my was my bedroom. I had a, a full-length concert grand in there. It was wow. to the extent that you couldn't get into the room without crawling under the piano <laughs> to get in. 
<laughs> used to sleep inside the piano. <laughs> no, but the, pia- the, the playing end of it was the far end. But as you walked into the room, you could just get through the door and then you had to go down and crawl under it like a tunnel to get into the room. How did they get it in? I don't know. We took the legs off and got it in sideways and stuff like that. Wow. Again, my dad, you know, he was really clever at that sort of stuff. Engineer. Yeah. He, he got it in. Exactly, yeah. So um, I used to play as loud as possible, sort of my cod version of Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto, which I first heard at the Festival Hall, in hope that... Because well, the, con- the, the girls from the County High Grammar School used to come past my window around about 4.30 or 4 o'clock. Brilliant. I used to play as loudly as possible with all the windows open in the hope that one of these girls would fall in love with this distant genius playing from... <laughs> but nobody bothered and nobody did. Um, if they fell in love with me, they didn't make it known. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure they did. So so Mike Batt's first concerts were, were from his front room slash bedroom. <laughs> yeah, they, they were the most pathetic version of a podcast. <laughs> Not, you know, they, they were like, with no one listening. It's yeah. the odd person walking past and taking no notice. <laughs> but I was listening, and in my mind, I was, you know, at the festival hall. Yeah. Well, that's the main thing. That's the main thing. That, that, that they were your first concerts. Yeah, but then I then I started playing down the pub, um, which was the best education you can possibly get. When yeah. I was about 14, and you, you couldn't get into a pub when you were 14 unless you happened to play the piano. And when I was 14, I looked about 12. When I was 18 and I actually got into the music business, I only looked about 15. And I've always looked kind of younger than, than, than I was. And, um, you know, it was in later life, you know, it was supposed to be good. But at the time, it was like, <laughs> why don't you believe I'm 18? I, you know, is my driving license. I want to get in the pub. <laughs> what, what, what songs were they having you play when you were 14? Oh, in the pub, in the, piano, in the, in the pub I used yeah. to have to play things like, I'd like, I'd like to... T- Take you on a slow boat to, to China. China. Yeah. Yes. All by myself alone. And I didn't know it, but somebody yeah. called, I remember a bloke very well. His name was Marcus. And he was an old drunk git. And he used to come <laughs> in. He loved the sing song. There was lots of them actually, but he was one particular one. Particularly, he got very drunk and couldn't sing at all. And it, you know, they would teach you the songs just by roaring them in their drunken way uh, through the air and, and drinking loads of pints. I had seven or eight pints of beer just lined up by people buying me the pints on top of the piano uh, when I was 14 or 15. And that was, that was my Friday night and my Saturday night. I got two quid a night, which made me, that you know, enough. I was the richest kid in school with four quid pocket money a week. Yeah, I bet you were. Yeah. Only two two years earlier, I was getting a shilling a week. So, wow. Yeah. And then, can you remember the the time that you started going to um, kind of rock rock gigs or or um, pop yeah. pop gigs? Did that come much later? Yeah. Well, I had joined a band, and I which is called Phase Four when I was still at school, and I played with them. Uh, but it was kind of um, R&B, early Stones, early Stones, because Stones yeah. was happening at the time. Uh, and I was singing and playing the organ uh, in that. And I didn't really go to gigs still then. But when I started, when I was about 17, and I, I had a girlfriend then, by then, um, and a, a, a bunch of pals who wanted to be sociable. So 
we would go, uh, my first real gigs I went to um, were at Southampton Civic Centre, which was in, well, obviously in Southampton. Uh, and um, <laughs> conveniently, because otherwise it would have been completely... Um, <laughs> um, and and uh, I saw Jimi Hendrix there. What? Uh, Great. Yeah. He, uh, uh, one other... I was really close, standing quite close to the stage, about eight people in from back from the stage. And uh, he's, he set his thing, the amplifier on fire and smashed his guitar, guitar up and threw it. It must have been, a, I don't know, a special one. They must have had a different one every night they used to smash up in that song because I'm sure he didn't do it to a vintage yeah. strat every night. No. But it, the strat, <laughs> the, the machine head came flying off it like a great big sort of 18-inch shard of wood came flying into the audience like like an arrow and missed me by a, just a, just an inch or two. Could have taken my eye out. But the biggest disappointment was I didn't actually get it to take home because some girl behind me picked it up oh. and oh. it in her handbag. What was he like, Mike? What was it? What, can you remember what it was like, life? I never knew him, but I, I went along there wearing my new... Um, military jacket that I just bought for, for I don't know, seven and six or something in the, nice. in the, in the ads at the back of the melody maker. And so uh, we were all it sort of people who wished we were hippies. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it was magic. Cause the thing you have to remember, what we don't know at the time is that that person is going to become a legend forever. He'd only been on the scene for about a year or two. So I'm going to see Jimi Hendrix, and it's fabulous. I'm going to see Jimi Hendrix, and it, it, you know, the air is full of oil of patchouli, and the, the the music is loud. I've got a young seventeen-year-old girl on my, you know, with me, and and we're just young teenagers enjoying teenagers enjoying the music that's happening at the time. We don't know that he's gonna, well, very sadly die eight years time and but after that before that he's going to make loads of great albums and become one of the greatest uh, players ever known on, on the planet we just didn't know that we just knew it was fabulous and we were thrilled to be there and it's the same with the move i saw them when, when roy wood was in the lineup that would be 1967 i guess they were brilliant they were brilliant yeah so they all used to come to southampton center and that's where we caught them Another one I saw at Southampton Civic Centre was Gino Washington and his Ram Jam Band. They were a great live band. I mean, they never got to become massive like the other two, but they were a great band, live band, you know, with the sort of swinging saxophones that used to sort of go up and down, like sort of the swings in a flare, forwards and backwards and all that. And it was great. They just did almost non-stop uh, gig without any talking, just all bang, 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 soul music. It was very exciting. So I got my share of gigs, but I sort of made, I hadn't had any gigs earlier before that, but I sort of made up for it by seeing a lot of gigs from about the age of 17. And spending um, spending the, the money you were earning in the pubs. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> it wasn't that expensive. I don't remember it being expensive to go and see a, 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 a gig. I don't remember it ever hurting to go and... Um, see an act it, it, it was a few shillings um not 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 uh not i don't know because uh, I, I tend well i don't go to many gigs these days i go to gigs that people invite me to and i sort of or very special gigs that maybe a record company might 
kindly invite me to come and look at, or, you know, if I, somebody on, on the same label as, and they're in town, and I get to go and see them. So I don't tend to have to, you know, very often, well, it sounds terrible, but I don't, I get into no. free quite a lot of gigs these days. But back in those days, I don't remember it being uh, an expensive item. I remember it being, and I wasn't flush, really. I mean, I, yes, I had four quid a week, but yeah. it, I suppose that is in the days when gigs would be, I was looking at some old Middle Earth posters the other day, and it was like entry was 11 and 6 or something. Brilliant. Uh, you know, 50p. When did things start taking off for you as a performer? When did your gigs start p- picking up with bands and with your songwriting? When did that sort of happen? I think what where, that's where the, the either interesting, if you're interested, or the boring bit, if you're not, is that as a performer, I did a lot of performing before I started making records. But the minute I started having records, particularly when I started having hit records, um, yeah. and it wasn't until, I mean, I started making records when I was 17, 18, 17 or 18. Uh, I had my first single out when I was 18. And I didn't do gigs to promote them. I used to be too busy making the next record or then I started working for the record company, Liberty Records, as their A&R guy. And so I was busy going around looking at lots of gigs, looking at a lot of people. Um, uh, we saw the early King Crimson. Did we want wow. to sign that? No, we passed on them. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> One they got away. Yeah. We, we did sign the Idol Race, um, Jeff Lynn's first band, and we had yeah. the Bonzos, Bonzo Dog. Oh, and yeah. from, from America, we had Credence Clear, Clearwater, and we had, um, uh, I'll tell you who, who we had I loved, uh, and I loved when they came over from America, and I used to have to deal with them, uh, was um, Canned Heat. All right. Wow. I was so into blues, and that was really my, st- my style, my, my natural style, and still is. Um, you know, if, if I walk into a pub and p- pick up the piano lid, I'll I'll play bl- some f- dirty blues. You know, that's what I do. Oh, you've 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 preempted me there, Mike, because I was actually going to ask you because I see you've got the, the piano there. Because one of the things I find fascinating about your career and your CV is, you know, I I wasn't lying or 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 you know blowing smoke in that introduction. You've literally spanned every genre of music it's incredible i'm not sure there's many other musicians or writers like yourself who you know classical rock and so i was genuinely interested in asking you what is inside mike batal what are you naturally and i was going to say can you can you answer that question by turning to your piano but you sort of preempted by by telling me you are r&b so I'd love it if you if you did turn to your piano and and you know well, what's the first thing that you yeah would um I I'll it's a it's only an electric piano so it's not quite the same as a but having said that it's my workhorse that I put all my midi I'm fine with an electric piano Mike uh, but I, let me see what I, I've got all these wires out of the way um, uh, and let's just see oops wasn't it now. So, I mean, the sort of thing I would, uh, if I'm sat, if, if I sat down and I would say, oh, I'll just play something, I, would probably, I can't think of what I shoot, I might play, I'd try to play something like this. Yeah. 
Lovely. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. That was fantastic. And, and as, a, as someone who's not a musician and who cannot write songs, you've sat down there and you've just played the blues and that could be an existing song already or you could have just made that up. For me, I just get such a thrill from that. But I do wonder, as a songwriter, someone who has that talent, now I'm going to ask you predictably about Bright Eyes. Because Bright Eyes is one of the first songs I ever connected with emotionally. And I remember as a, as a young boy, cry, that's the first song that made me cry. Oh. And it, 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 I listened to it again today quite a few times uh, by various people as well. Um, and it still has that same effect on me. It's, it's one of the most beautiful songs ever ever written ever oh, written that's so kind of you. Uh, as a songwriter when you're writing bright eyes for example when is it that you know that you are writing something very special does it even occur to you i don't know there is that moment when you well up and you and you almost will you tear up while you're playing it and halfway through a song if you find, like, and it happened with Bright Eyes, um, that I could almost, I almost had to stop because I would be, I would burst into tears if I was, wasn't careful. If that, that's my yardstick. If I have a song where that happens uh, and I am almost shocked by the fact that it's making me emotional, I, it's not a trick. I'm not just putting a bu bunch of emotional building blocks together and going, well, that's how we do it. Shove it off into the world and see how well it does. You can do that, but usually yeah. I'm trying to write properly from the heart, as it were. Not that that's the only proper way to write, but anyway. But when it makes me tear up and need maybe to stop, that's when I know it will probably do it to other people. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, Bright Eyes was one of them. Uh, the other, another one that that happened with was Closest Thing to Crazy, funnily enough. So yeah. oh, it, it yeah. seemed to transfer. But interestingly, for me anyway, uh, negatively interestingly, the slower, more pa powerful uh, lyrical lyrics and, and melodic ballads are the hardest ones to get played on the radio because all radio producers, all, most radio pro producers, want their shows to, to be fast moving. They don't want the right. people to turn over and turn off. And so, you, you know, getting even on Radio 2 these days, it's very hard to get a slow record played. And in fact, Radio 1, which was our only target radio station in those days, because Radio 2 was not able to break, break a record. They didn't play No one who, who bought records listened to Radio 2. They do yeah. now. They're, mm. they're massive right now, but back then they didn't. 
Um, Radio One told us, well, I can't say it on air, like what they told us, but it began with an F. Right. No. Uh, yeah, and the second word began with an O and, and had three letters ending with F. Um, <laughs> no, I definitely and, don't know it now. Yeah, and, and we, we, we did. And we went round to Radio 2 with it and I got a couple of tellies uh, myself um, giving away stuffed rabbits um, to ch- kids who uh, on, on swap shop with Noel Edmonds in the morning. Yeah. And uh, it suddenly went from something like, I don't know, 300 records a day to 60,000 records a day. Uh, I mean, literally, it wow. went through the roof. I mean, I mean 60,000 was a good sales figure per week. I mean, yeah. actually, these days, 60,000 would be a massive sales figure to have for the whole life number of the one. project. Yeah, life of the project. You know, 60,000 records in six months would be great. But um, in those days, 60,000 records in a day was just unheard of. And it went straight to number one, and it stayed there for six weeks. How did it come about that, um, that Art Garfunkel was singing it? Did you have any choice over the matter, or, or was that something the record label stipulated? No, I wrote it for the film, Watership Down, mm. and the producers came around and heard me playing the song on the piano, and they said, oh, we like the song. Who have you got in mind to sing it? And I said, well, I'd really love it if Art Garfunkel sang it. I wrote it for his kind of voice. Right. But I've got a list of other people who would do it quite well. And I'm number 10 on the list. And uh, number two on the list is actually Colin Blunstone. Oh, really? Do you remember who else was on the list? Uh, who else would be on it? I can't, I honestly, I mean, that's thrown me a bit because I can't remember back that far. But I do remember that's who was number two and I remember who was number 10. That's fine. That's brilliant. <laughs> that is such a wonderful insight because I, I genuinely find that fascinating. And the fact that you you wanted Art Garfunkel and, and he did you, how was that process? Do you have to sort of, you know, twist their arm or was it a... Well, I said, I'm sure you won't get in. So should we just move on down the list? And they said, no, let's try and uh, we, luckily, I was on CBS. They, their record deal was with CBS, the film people. Mm. And so CBS got us in touch with Goddard Lieberson, who was the grandfather of CBS Records, who set it up in the first place, who had now retired, but who was still powerful as a, as a memory. He signed Art Garfunkel. He put out the first long-playing record ever. Wow. wow. You know, uh, a very interesting, very witty guy. Um, he must have been in his least late 70s by the time this was, was happening. And he signed Simon and Garfunkel. So he knew them. Amazing. And yeah. um, so we sent him the song. He loved it. Sent it straight to Art Garfunkel. I said, you better do this because it's going to be, you know, this will be good. And um, not you better do it, but I, I recommend you do it. You know, it's <laughs> a certain way you speak to an artist and it's not that. You, know, you don't just, well, actually, funny enough, record companies do talk to to artists in a very authoritarian way quite often. But mm-hmm. I'm sure Goddard was one of those people who, uh, who would have been very um, diplomatic in the way he presented the idea. And uh, it wasn't, it was only a, a week later that Art Garfunkel was sitting in my front room, routining the song with me, ready to go into the studio the next day. He, he came over to you and, and was yeah. in your front room? Yeah. 
and we recorded it in Wessex Studios in North London. That yeah. is incredible. Yeah. Be- before we take you to the quick fire round and back to live music, yeah, I am fascinated by um, a, a musician like yourself uh, with regards to collaborating. Do you do you prefer to collaborate? Do you enjoy that sort of sharing that creative process with someone? Depends what you mean by collaborating. As a writer, I'm not a very good collaborator. Why? Why do you say that? I'm a bit of a steering wheel grabber. Right. Well, first of all, I'm not comfortable with coming out with rough ideas, just sitting with someone and saying, "What about this for an idea? What about that?" Right. I'd rather sit there and think up my own ideas and then if I like them, I keep them. If I don't, I don't. I'm very keen to then play them to other people and see what they think of them and then change them if I if everyone hates it. But um, unless I absolutely feel I'm the only one in the room that's right. But, <laughs> you know, which can happen. So um, do you do you generally write? So, you know, you, you, you let, I mean, you've written for so many people. Katie Melua, when... Yeah. When, when you wrote for her, would you, would you write it on your own? Would you have the whole the, the whole tune down, the melody, lyrics, and then go and say, here yeah. we go, or yeah. finish this? Is that how you preferred to work? Yeah, and there have been occasions where I haven't, but I've just been the lyricist, for example, with Phantom of the Opera. You know, yeah, I, yeah. That was with Andrew Lloyd Webber. I've worked with Tim Rice, but then with him, we shared the lyric. Uh, it was a personal story. We did A Winter's Tale, yeah. It was about my girlfriend. So I had to write a, a, a large share of the record, of the lyrics, as well as the tune. So so that was a collaboration, but it just happened to be a personal story of mine. So there are, t- you know... You can, a Winter's Tale is about your girlfriend? Yeah. Who's now my wife. Hey! No Excellent. Yeah. Has been for 38 years as well. That Wonderful. I yeah. never knew that was about your... Yeah, it was when I thought the relationship was over because she lived in Australia and I lived here. And I was like, it was all about... I said to Tim, look, let's write a song about a love that can't be because of geographical or other reasons, not because the person one person's chucked the other and gone off with someone else, but because you just can't... It won't, can't work. It's, too much, it's all too hard. So it, that's why, and he he just, I sat at the piano, he stood, at the, stood next to the piano, I remember it, it was the upright piano, and he was leaning against the wall, and he, he came up with, I said, think of a title, and he, he went through all these titles, and one after another, and I was like, no, nah, no, nah, no, nah, what about this? And he said, what about Winter's Tale? I'm like, yes, that is it. That is, that is oh, Winter's Tale is perfect, because we wanted a big Christmas single for, for David Essex. We were yeah. writing it. To order, he, David had asked us to write a song, asked me to write a song. Tim was coming around to my place the next day to write a musical, we thought. I wanted to write about the Aztecs, which never got written. And um, <laughs> Yeah, and so we ended up writing winter, the first sort of little bit of Winter's Tale. Then Tim had to go and I finished it off. Well, it's got such a lovely melody and it, it really does yeah. have that sense of longing and... Um, kind of loss i don't know about you chris but i'm still waiting for my wife to write me a hit single <laughs> I'll, I'll write you one alex <laughs> thanks chris. 
we are going to take you into what we ironically call the quick fire round. Because right. often our guests give us a nice quick answer, but then more often than not, I, I get interested by the answer and I ask another question off that. But we call it the quick fire round anyway. Right. Well, you might have to edit out the silences or the ums and ahs while I think of it, and then it'll make it seem to the listener as if it's quick fire, but it won't. I like that. I like that. <laughs> How do you so, think it was working before, Alex? That That's what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so who is and we also realize this is just for fun because i can't answer all these questions that with the same answer twice you know because it's really hard but for the sake of having to choose so for example this first question who is your favorite vocalist live and i realize you may have three or four but tonight mike you choose one live best Vocalist live. Yeah. Oh, so many. I mean, Katie Mellywood is like right up there. I know people would think, oh, yeah. A lot of people think, oh, she's a bit sort of MOR. But my God, you should see it. I mean, I've managed her and stood at the back of the hall and I've been on, on stage with her at the, at the piano. So at two different times of her sort of career. And she's magic on stage. She just opens her mouth and sings and, it, and the room, you could hear a pin drop. That's one. Um, and she really is, I mean, seriously wonderful singer. Um, yeah. I, and I obviously I've worked with a lot of good singers. But um, I remember way back when I was about 16 or 17, talking to first gigs, going to a gig with Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Witherspoon, the, the jazz blues singer. Right. Okay. Google him. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I will. That was one of the first times I thought, bloody hell, you, this is... This is real live singing. The stage was made of beer crates. It was a jazz club called Botley, Botley Jazz Club near Southampton. Right. And um, he was, uh, you know, the real deal. Um, black soul singer, uh, blues, bluesy, uh, just great. And so who's the best live singer? I don't know. There's so many uh, I've, I've seen. but uh, I'll, I'll take those. Katie, Katie Mellew and Jimmy Witherspoon. Yeah. I'm I'm, gonna have to, I'm definitely going to have to Google Jimmy with a spoon. Um, what was your favourite gig, either as a performer or as a, a, a as a punter? As a performer, no question, uh, the hunting of the snark at the Royal Albert Hall. Wow. See the 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 lineup that was assembled for that was quite ridiculous. Remind us who 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 was assembled for for that that performance okay. well and the album is different from the a little bit different from from the album but the album hall we had john hurt uh, as the narrator uh yeah. we had roger daltrey julian lennon uh um denise williams captain sensible yeah uh, uh justin haywood took the place of art garfunkel who had been on the album yeah uh Mid-Jure came and played some guitar and sang and joined in all the choruses. Of course he and did. And the London Symphony Orchestra as well, a, a fantastic rhythm section. So no question, that's the most fun and the nicest, sort of biggest memory of a concert I've performed in. Yeah. Um, that's a heck of a gig, that is. That's a heck of a gig. So what, on the, on the flip side, and we let you interpret the meaning of this, what's the yeah. worst gig? Well, I mean, it depends how far you go back. I mean, there are times, there was a, catas a catastrophic gig I did yes. 
a local dancer when I was a kid in a, in my band, like my local band, uh, and I played piano, I played organ. Another guy played drums, and had a, we had a bass player. I think I sang. Anyway, I, I played a Watkins Telstar organ, and I stood on I stood up to play it, and I used to do my, do the volume with my right foot, and I'd learned enough of the technology to know that when the when the light when the bulb of the light that shone through a hole um i know it's all too technical for your <laughs> show but anyway when it went out and needed changing uh that was when your organ stopped working and it happened just as the gig started it was only a local dance but all the local 15 16 year olds are all waiting for this band they never heard of but um to play and I spent the entire, I thought I'd put a new bulb in. I put a new bulb in, nothing happened. I tried the fuse of the organ and there's all these people milling about and the, gradually, gradually the room emptied and I'm lying there under the organ like a, you are under the car when it's broken down. No. Literally no music got played that night. I'm lying under the organ and the empty hall became empty. The <laughs> hall became empty. That is the worst gig I've ever done, or not done, I should say. Or not done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, The next question is just, I I mean, for me, I I would probably answer that live performance of The Hunting of the Snark, but um, a pinch yourself moment, a a moment where you looked around and went, I I think I'm... (laughs) living existing outside of my body at the moment this is odd um were there any moments like that there must have been there was a lovely moment when i was asked by buckingham palace to put together a concert for music and youth in the art uh, for youth in the arts and i had to produce it my company produced it and we had to hire lots of different uh, talent to do it we had the english national ballet um, I was conducting an orchestra of um, young people, a symphony yeah. orchestra, in the ballroom at uh, Buckingham Palace, uh, and there was there were young young rising stars, but I, I couldn't really give you uh, you know names. But it was absolutely packed with everyone in the in the business. And my wife was sitting next to who's that that film star um, who was in House of Cards in the American version. Kevin Spacey. Uh, yes, for example. I mean, I'm just saying the level of people. I mean, let's not talk about Kevin Spacey particularly. <laughs> Apparently, he did quite a lot of talking about himself. But anyway, let's move on. Um, but I'm just saying, it was just a place full of, and, you know, you walk out and there'd be drinks afterwards and there'd be, you turn around, there'd be Michael McIntyre standing there. And, oh, hello. Did you enjoy the performance? So that's just, you know, that, that just came out of nowhere. Well, it didn't come out of nowhere because I did quite a lot of things for you know, which were connected um, with with um, the music that w- w- was happening around about that time uh, in the early 2000s, when, uh, you know, there were one or two things I did up at Buckingham Palace uh, for world occasions or things. And um, so those were the times when I sometimes thought, I know it's not exactly a big musical memory, like being invited to play with Jimi Hendrix or something, which I wasn't, just to be sure, make sure you... <laughs> um, but um, 
it, it was that was a very special moment where you think, wow, you know, I didn't expect to be doing this when I was conducting my orchestra of wooden furniture uh, to a record of Schubert's Ninth Symphony when I was eleven. You know, exactly, and that's it, isn't it? It's it it's that you know, it, it, it's that childhood memory. That is what you did, and there you are. And we had something similar with um, uh, Johnny Kelsey, uh, uh, Indian drummer. And he said, you know, he, his parents moved to Leeds and when they went out, he would sneak in their front room as a young boy and play the drums on his dad's leather sofa to Led Zeppelin and cut years later to 1989 and Johnny plays on stage with you know Led Zeppelin he too has played for the Queen as well with his Indian uh, drum uh, doll band is the that doll, the, the, the doll, doll foundation. foundation yeah and, right. and I, I love that I love that you have those moments yeah and you know you were living out that sort of childhood fantasy well last yeah. question in the quick fire round what's your favorite piece of music to perform live so you've got one live gig tomorrow you've got a full arena albert hall let's say royal albert hall it's going to be packed you can you can perform whatever you like what what would you choose it's a, that is a hard one because you know there's a lot to pick from at my Absolutely. age um but there's one song that i often begin a concert with because I know it so well, I know I'm not going to play it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to get the lyrics. And that's a song called Railway Hotel. Um, and uh, if you don't know it, you can Google it or whatever. But it yeah. was never a hit. But it was one of the songs I've done that uh, a lot of people have covered. And yeah. um, it was on one of my solo albums. And so if I want um, to, to play something that I know... If people don't know it, they're going to like it, hopefully. Um, and if they do, you know, if they're fans, they'd say, oh, he's going to start with Railway Hotel. And so I get that feeling of connection with the audience. So, yeah. and it's not one of the big hits that says, look at me, I wrote yeah. this, you know. So it's a nice intimate little song that I like to play about a guy who can't afford to take his girlfriend to the Savoy, but he can afford to take her to the Railway Hotel. And that's oh. how they spend their first night. Oh, lovely, lovely. Um, I I was wanting to ask. I mean, I, th I think we would be a bit remiss if we went through a, an interview with Mike Bart and not mention the Wombles. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's disgraceful. It would be an absolute tragedy. Yeah, it would. Um, it would. So, I mean, I sp one, I, I'm wondering if a, a pinch yourself moment was when Abba was a member of Abba wearing a, a Wombling a Wombles badge um, during Eurovision. Am I am I right in saying that? That's right. Yeah, I was down. <laughs> um, I was down in Brighton, having secured um, with great, uh, you know, what's the word? Uh, I was very proud that we'd we'd secured the opportunity to launch our second single, "Remember You're a Womble." Yes. as being the interval act at the Brighton UK hosted Eurovision. And we made a film of the Wombles sort of prattling around Rossingdean and, and uh, Brighton and places like that in, in beach buggies. And that's what they played. But I had to come on afterwards in a Womble costume and give some flowers to Katie Boyle, who was the um, on, on stage presenter. Yeah. And... Uh, and I came on with my flowers and 
and get and gave it a, you know get, and I was carrying a sign saying vote for the Wombles. <laughs> it's all very silly. Yeah. And um, the, earlier in the day, uh, I'd met these. Um, I saw these two quite attractive girls, and I thought they'd be well worth having a chat with. So I went over and started chatting with them, and then, um, only to my mild disappointment, uh, their husbands turned up, and of course it was Benny and Bjorn and Frida and Agneta, yeah. and uh, and they they would you know um, just performing, and they didn't they weren't the big pop stars ever that we know now, but they were charming people, lovely lovely people. And obviously they were, well, I'd say they were a hot favourite, but people loved their song. And I remember watching it from the sidelines and I remember being backstage with them as they, um, as they saw the votes come in and watched, watched themselves win. And um, yeah, so it, that morning I, I, I happened to have with me, as I would being of a promotional disposition, <laughs> and badges saying, remember you're a womble. And, and she wore one uh, and uh, yeah it's it, she she wore it on that famous blue costume that she wore you can still what see song, it what song did they perform waterloo that night waterloo yeah yeah waterloo yeah. I, you know, that is so how how was how was touring with the the wombles i've i've i i'm a photographer and a couple of years ago i did a uh a project where I photographed loads of different drummers based on their childhood memories of drumming before they had a kit. And right. one, of, one of my dream wish list drummers, I didn't think I'd ever get him, but was, was Clem Catini. And, oh, yeah. um, and I had a lovely couple of hours with him chatting about his, his, um, his career. And, and I mean, yeah. his book's wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but um, but yes, and he was he was he was um, was it Tobermory or Orinoco or? Well, he was never in, in the cost. Well, he was actually in later life. But in yeah. the days when we were making the records, I had a squad of people that I just wouldn't work without. And that yeah. Clem was the drummer. The, the the bass player was a guy called Les Hurdle, who was a, yeah. did a lot of sessions in those days. Chris Spedding was my I won't work without you guitar player. Yeah. And that was my three, my dream team. And then there was usually another guitar player, probably Alan Parker, uh, or you know, there's there were quite a, there were two or three other people who were real top players, and they would be my main squad. And they were all working way too hard and way too often and expensively for me to be able to afford them to go and jump in Womble costumes and go and <laughs> jump around on top of the pops. So I had a, um, a band of pals who were actually a band. And yeah. uh, I, I just rang them up one day and said, look, I've got Top of the Pops in two days' time. Do you want to be Wombles? And Amazing. they jumped into the costumes and Bob's your uncle. There we were. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. I love that. I, love that. I was I love looking people. up the lineup. Sorry, Alex. I was just going to say, I was looking up the lineup um, and and I've forgotten his name, the sax player. Um, but I realised that the sax player also played on the White Album. And... Well, I don't know. It was Eddie Mordew... It was, he was up, uh, up there. In fact, the, uh, what's it called? Um, Wiki have got it wrong because they actually attribute people to the Wombles. I mean, they, for example, would say that the drummer ah. was, of the Wombles was, was Clem. Well, Clem did play on all of the rec every record. And yeah. Chris Spang played the guitar on all of the records. But they almost never appeared. 
Um, later in life, Clem did come and um, be Bungo on t in the 90s when we uh, relaunched it. And he, um, he, he played, uh, it, was, it was that our sort of on stage on telly drummer uh, in later life. But at the time, they were all so busy doing three sessions a day and earning an absolute fortune. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, at that point, Clem, Clem became the first drummer to have his own roadie. And he was, he was recording for Decca in the morning. And then he, his a roadie was taking another, another kit to Abbey Road or... Yeah. Be yeah. or whatever it was, yeah, it was ridiculous. But he was what he was up to. Now, I'd say Ray Cooper was my, always my favorite percussionist, yeah. Um, why, oh, why shouldn't he be? He is the best rock and roll percussionist in the world. Well, my first big stadium gig was Eric Clapton in '91, and I remember um, Ray Cooper was a percussionist on that. And yeah. at one point, he climbed inside, he had a massive drum solo, and he climbed inside. A grand piano and started playing it and it was yeah it was it was bonk and then at the at the end of this solo it went on for quite a while and then the men in white coats came and just dragged him off the side stage i was actually gonna say you 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 surrounded yourself with a pretty much a fantasy band didn't you i mean that that was like you know the best ray was always brilliant in the studio and a great sense of humor everyone had to have a good sense of humor and uh Oh God! Um, the number of the, the amount of fun I've had with those people. Clem was what the life and soul of it. I mean, he's always shouting remarks about the the violinist and that sort of thing. <laughs> he, he was the one who famously said when when the engineer said, "Is everyone's are everyone's headphones all right?" And Clem said, "Yeah, fine, except for now, I have the string section just a tiny bit earlier." <laughs> Nice. That is brilliant. Well, Mike, before before we take you to the the last question, would I just just like to ask: Is there someone that you wish you could have seen live that you just never had the opportunity to do so? Yeah, Harry Nilsson. Oh, Harry Nilsson. I, I I absolutely kind of I wouldn't say worship. That's too strong a word. Worship, but. Um, he was one of the finest uh, pop and rock singers we've ever had. Um, he 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 was just a, such a great talent. Um, I happen to think he was a much stronger singer than he was writer, but he was still a good writer. Mm. And yeah. uh, you know, uh, sad sad loss. And uh, I would absolutely love to have seen him perform. I, I did have a cup of tea with him in Holland when I was uh, making a record out there and he was in the studio next door and we ran into each other in the in the corridor. He didn't know who I was from Adam, but he knew I was recording in the next studio and he, he kind of liked what he was hearing. Oh, he lovely. said, let's go have a cup of tea. So we went and had a cup of tea. I just said coffee. I lied. Oh, well, that's, that's something, I suppose, yeah. that you were able to spend just a little bit of time with him. Well, it was just sad that he died so young, but then you could say that about Jimi Hendrix and lots of people. Yeah. And then the, the last the last question we ask all our guests is, um, is there a favourite live album or a live track, or maybe it's a performance that was captured on video um, that we could watch on YouTube? Um, what what would What's your go-to piece of live recorded music? That's a tough one, except it, it might be hard for you to find, but there's an album that I've got, one of my favourite songs for, I actually recorded it with Katie Mellua, oddly, and it, uh, because it's, it was not the sort of thing you'd expect her to do 
on the first album I did with her. But I, I heard it myself when I was about 17, and it's John Mayle live at Kluke's Clique. Right. A oh. club called Kluke's Clique, K-L-O-O-K-S, K-L-E-E-K. And I believe it was, I came across somebody mentioning it the other day. I think it was, there wasn't a building called Kluke's Clique. I think it was in a hotel somewhere in the, what's a week or something. But anyway, John Mayle and his Blues Breakers. And yeah. the song is Crawling Up a Hill. Um, up a hill. It's, it's one that um, as I say I've liked it all my life and I used to do it when I was in a band because I liked it Brilliant. Was this when um, Eric Clapton was with the Blues Breakers or was it after or before do you know I think it might have been Jimmy Page I can't Jimmy quite, Page. I'm not sure because the Blues Breakers was of course a breeding ground for so many uh, of yeah. those Mm-hmm. Jeff Beck, I think, as well, was one of them. Yeah, and it was a member of Fleetwood Mac came from there as well. What, you mean Peter Green played? Peter Green, uh, yeah, that's it. Peter Green, yeah. Um, potentially, yeah, but yeah, some band, some band. Well, we shall we shall try our best to find that and and put a link uh, on on the webs on the website. So, uh, listeners, as well as a reminder, on the Gig Stories uh, website, each of our guests has their own page and we put on pictures and links to songs and things that we've spoken about and we will do the same and as you're listening to this now if you go to the website you'll be able to see mike's web page and we will have endeavored to have found that as well the john that john mail uh, track mike bat you have been an absolute gem what a wonderful time spent with you cannot thank you enough well, I've really enjoyed chatting, guys, and thanks for asking me. So, um, uh, you know, I can't say it's been, uh, you know, f- any effort at all. It, it's just been been a pleasure having a chat. Mike Bat there, what a gentleman. What a career. And there was lots in there that I didn't know, but was fascinating. Art Garfunkel, can you imagine having him pop into your front room? Hey, I tell you what, you can have anyone you want sing your song. Oh, really? Okay. And then have Art Garfunkel turn up in your front room. Yeah. That's, that's belting that, isn't it? Who at the time was one of the biggest singers on the planet. Oh, yeah. And let's be honest, still is in in so many ways you know when simon and garfunkel got back together that was manic you know trying to get tickets for those reunion shows and that and they, they're huge aren't they huge and i i didn't realize that he was responsible for one of my personal favorites christmas songs um winter's tale yeah not a clue that that was mike bat i feel so ignorant and, and daft well you don't no you're not daft you're ignorant, but you're not daft. <laughs> you're an ignoramus, but you're not daft. Don't put yourself down. But that, that honestly, I could have spoken to him longer. It was, he was fantastic. And I loved that he was set up at his keyboard, at his piano. Yeah. Um, I think we should get more guests on who have got their instruments in front of them. Oh, totally. And for him to play was just, oh, thank you very much, Mike. Please. Very generous of him. Please so. carry on. Carry on yeah. while we just sit and listen for a while. Front row. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to say before we um, close the podcast, so when this goes out, um, it will be around about a year 
since um, my very good friend Roger Quigley left us. He died um, on the 18th of August in 2020, really suddenly, he was only 51, but he's left behind this massive legacy of his beautiful music with um, Mongolfio Brothers and his own projects um, at Swim Two Birds. Um, there's one song that I absolutely adore, which you should um, check out, which is called Wine Destroys the Memory. If you check that out, I'll pop it. I'll pop it on the. Um, I'll, I'll I'll pop it on social media. But there's another one. He's just had a a, a room dedicated to him at uh, King's Arms in Salford, where he was a, a regular and played there loads. And there's a video of. Um, the Mongolfia brothers playing a tune called The World is Flat and it's just heavenly. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll post that on social media, but, um, yeah, we'll be raising a glass to you on the 18th, Mr. Quigley. Absolutely. Chris pointed me in the direction uh, of this music. And for those of you who love new music and or being introduced to music that you've not heard before, uh, I should say, you you will love this. It's so, so beautiful. I'm so, I'm so glad Chris told me about him. Absolutely. We'll, we'll all be uh, raising a glass to you, Roger. Yeah. One other thing. So I'll, I'll pop a video because, um, about when I was, uh, I used to work at Corner House and there was a jazz season I programmed at Corner House in 2009. Jazz. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we had, <laughs> we had four films on, um, and we had um, an exhibition of fantastic jazz um, live photography by uh, a Manchester-based uh, photographer called William Ellis. And we also got a, a scratch band together. So there was me, there was Otto, Otto Smart, who was also in the, the Mongolfia Brothers. Um, he was on guitar. Uh, Jamie Finley was on, on bass. And drumming was Mr. Roger Quigley. And, you know, he could write a song like with the best of them. And he had Voice of an Angel. I think he sang um, The Summer Wind, um, which was gorgeous. But there's only one bit of video remaining of of this live performance. It just happened once. And it's the theme from um, Get Carter. And his drumming is fantastic. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's me looking wow. weedy. I've, I've put on a couple of pounds since since we um, since we recorded oh, it. Yes, I have. Um, so it was about twelve years ago. So I'll, I'll pop a link to that up as well because it's um, it. it's it's great because he he was real kind of multi instrumentalist, bit of a musical genius. So yeah, love that. I yeah. love that. I love that. Yeah, please put that on. And um, bit of music music quiz for you. On. Which band always walk on stage to get Carter? I knew this. We need to talk about this as well with um, about intro music because I love that. Um, no, you've got I'm, me. I'm desperately trying to get a member of this band on, and I've just messaged member, just messaged the guitarist of this band. Is it Queen? No. Did you message no. Brian May? Yes, yes, <laughs> I did, Brian. I'm on the Gig Stories podcast. No. Is it Foo Fighters? Northwest, Northwest Band. Northwest Band. Deal new. Deal new. Writers of the greatest song ever written, according to uh, the front man. And he genuinely believes that. Liberty um, X? I believe him. 
I believe him as well. So I believe him. Libty X, you are very close. Echo and the Bunnymen. Whoa. Echo and the Bunnymen. Wow. I've supported them, not really, but I really want Will Sargent on, on the podcast. So, let's get him on. Um, anyway, let's leave it there. We'll leave there as well with Roger. This episode is dedicated to Roger's memory. It'll be your raise a glass and have a look on the socials because Chris will put links to that music. Thank you as always for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gig Stories Pod, and send us whatever you want. We we always have questions and things uh, going out and doing the rounds. Tell us who you've seen. Tell us your first gigs. Send us your pictures still of merchandise, and um, we we genuinely love hearing from you. It's fab. And then next next time in in two weeks time, mm. I am looking forward to hearing about Boardmasters and Sam Fender. Oh my god! Hey, is it? Is it legal for me to record stuff? Oh, do you know what? I'll have video footage. I, in fact, no, I won't have video footage because it's just going to be me crying, blubbing my way through live music. I love falls. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do have to go to the toilet halfway through, don't do it in the pint pot and throw it. I would go never to, do that. Go to a designated weeing point. I will put it in a can and throw it. <laughs> put it in a can and then throw it, yeah. Yeah, because that really gets good purchase on someone's head you can take the man out of cardiff can't you have a lovely time everyone hope you enjoy your august and we'll see you next time on the gig stories podcast see you next time bye bye bye